This year, um, I heard today there's a 22-year-old uh, who had a stroke. Um, somebody my wife knows. So we're going to dedicate this to a foolish layman for Sophia Batpolina. Um, and for those who want later, we'll say a parak to Helen that she should be better. I don't know who she is, but she should have a foolish Um And also, Bezrat Hashem, that uh, our new grandson should have a bris bismano and that he should... Uh, that he should be healthy, and his mother, Eleanor, should be healthy, Bezrat Hashem. Okay. Ki We'll go in a war. This is a difficult parish. Difficult parish. Right? And it calls to mind a lot of difficult decisions. Now, the parish itself con- continues with Eshet Yifatoah which is just a very difficult parsha, but because I gave Shira on that last year, I don't want to repeat it for the Shana Betbais, but anybody wants, you can organize a group and come over to me next year, next week, I'm happy to give you Shira on it. Although, Eshet Torah is not what it seems. Okay? Uh, you go to war, you see a woman, you desire her, you can't just take her. You have to bring her home, you have to let her sort of, you know, sort of grow her hair long, not cut her fingernails. See if you're still interested in her when you see her as a person and not as an object. And then you can offer her to be with her. And if you do, and she accepts, then she's basically doing giyur. And she becomes your wife. And she has rights. And if she doesn't, right? She was an ovid of a rosara. She was an idolatress. And therefore, technically, in a war, she would be put to death. But in this instance, because you brought her home, if she doesn't want to do that, then she goes free as long as she's willing to keep Sheva Mitzvah the seven Noachad laws. If she doesn't want to give up murdering, stealing, whatever, so then it's understandable in a healthy society that that would engender different results. But that's not our topic for the night. Right? This is a difficult parsha. Let me tell you a story. Okay? Which, I don't know, I think maybe I mentioned this week, so... If this sounds very familiar to all of you, then stop me in the middle. I'll tell you a different story. But, um, so we were on uh, Milui and we were on reserve duty in Hebron. You guys will remember the story. When we get to Hebron, the first day of reserve duty is what's called Hafifa, where the commanders from the unit that's leaving, you know, you're doing 24 days or 30 days, their last day is our first day. The first day, you know, you, you, you go to Milui and you do like uh, three days of uh, maneuvers to get back into the headspace and infantry training, whatever, you don't just walk off your, out of your lawyer's office and start shooting, right? And on the third day, so the sergeants keep the soldiers and do whatever they're doing with them, and all the officers and commanders, we all go and do this hafifa with their commanders. And they're taking us around to all the positions, you know, what's the manpower needed for each position, what are the, the soft spots, what are the danger points, what are the events that occurred, it's a lot of data, and you have to try to remember it all, it's a, it's a tough day. And we, we get to this one place, it's a two-story house, an Arab house, and the army has taken over the roof, I'm putting aside the ethical questions there, because there were some very violent incidents there. So they sit on this family's roof, and they look down in the square, and this is supposed to keep the, the peace, right? And if there's an event, if there's serious, you know, terrorism, whatever, then they can call in troops from this vantage point, from this tzatzpit. So we get up to this tzatzpit, and they're showing us what the weak points are, and I noticed something really interesting. There's like a, a big square roof, kind of like what we have on the, on the, on the roof of Oraita. Like a, I don't know, three foot high, three and a half foot high, maybe four foot high stone wall. Right up to here, right up to my chest. And on the top of this stone wall, like a square surrounds the roof. And on the top of the square, they've drilled in, nailed in these corrugated pieces of like tin. 
the kind of things you'd find on a shanty house like the Bedouin or South African. And I'm looking at this, trying to figure out what this is. It's actually annoying. Because if this is the roof, the corrugated tin sticks into the roof, so you can't kind of lean on the roof. It's like preventing you from getting to the roof. I said, why would they do this? So I look at the, 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 you know, my opposite, their company commander, and I'm like, what is this about? He says, oh, we have a big problem here. He says, there's a school down there. And every day, actually, it's up there. And every day at around 1 o'clock, the kids get out of school. And what do they do when they get out of school? Palestinian neighborhood, right? They just throw whatever they have up on there. It's like a sport for them. They throw bottles, iron bars, rocks, whatever it might be, right? And, you know, it, 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 it's actually pretty scary. And we don't want the men to get hurt. But you're not going to open fire on, like, 9-year-old kids or 11-year-old kids who are throwing this stuff. So we, we came up with this idea, or the unit before them, we put this stuff down, and now when they start doing this, we just hit the ground, roll under the pieces of tin, wait till the stuff finishes, they go home, it's all over, we take the stuff, throw it back down, and he shows us it's like a pile of stuff at the bottom of the house. Now, I didn't want to embarrass him, say, last day of what's the point? But I look at, you know, my fellow officers, and we're like, this does not sit well with us. This is a terrible message. Like, it's okay to throw iron bars at Israeli soldiers, that is not okay, right? And I understand the dilemma, we gotta come up with a better solution. So when we have our own briefing, so I kinda pipe up and say, okay, we gotta stop this. So we're determined to stop, we'll catch a few of the kids throwing rocks, their parents get fined, whatever it might be, it'll calm down. But we can't catch them. Because every time we try to get into the neighborhood, 11, 12, one o'clock, the kids are on lookout, they see us coming, and they start whistling. And you hear this sound in an Arab neighborhood, like, you know, Janine, Jabalia, Shrem, whatever it is. It goes from one to another. They know you're there. So by the time we get there, the kids have dispersed or they disappeared. So we can't catch them. We don't know what to do. So we're having a briefing, like, on the third day, and this is getting out of control, and somebody's going to get hurt. This is not going to end well. I'm looking at the map, and the battalion commander comes in to hear a briefing from the from me and the other officers. And, um, and I raised my hand and I said, listen, this is a problem in this unit, you know, he's new to this like we are. And I, I have an idea, right? And I go over to the map, on the briefing room there's a big map, and I point out that this village goes up from Kikar Gross, which is named after a guy, Arla Gross, who was murdered uh, by terrorists like a number of years earlier, in the early 80s. And I show him that the top of the, the village kind of goes up the hill, and on the other side of the hill, it stops because there's a, there's a big area of vineyards. So I said, how about if one day, after all the Arabs go to work, after the kids are the school, we come up from the back, we just sit on the top, and instead of coming from the bottom in our jeeps, right, we'll have a unit on foot, and we'll just run down from the top, they won't see us coming, and we'll catch a bunch of kids, and we'll do what we have to do. You know, there's a whole process, you take them to the base, and you... You find the parents, and they get fined, and it's like a serious issue, and they get a tick and whatever. But, like, it'll calm everything down. So the battalion commander loved that idea. He says, okay, you're up. <laughs> Don't suggest an idea, you know? I'm like, oh, didn't think of that. Okay, fine. So one morning, like the next morning, now you can't just, like, this is a serious hike. You got to take your Jeeps. You gotta, they got to drop you off in a command car. So they drop us up about five, six, seven kilometers away. And we hike up sort of, you know, through the valley. Then we wait down in the Kerem until we're sure the kids have gone out. And then we come up into the top of the village and we just find a place and we sit. We're going to sit there. Now, the good news is, unless something happens, we got three, four hours to relax. Okay? Because, right? Or whatever it was. 
So it's like 10, 11, where we're waiting. And I have a, you know, we have a radio. And the guy on top of the speed knows this is going on. And he's going to spot for us. Okay? Sure enough, 1 o'clock, we hear the bells. The kids start coming out of their school. It's like, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of kids coming out of school. So we start getting up top and working our way down from the top. Right? And I hear him saying, they're coming. And two kids just threw a rock. And they're starting. And we're, we're not running because... You know, there's hundreds of them. We're going to catch some of them, right? All of a sudden, this guy over the radio yells, I, I see a masked man. There's a masked man. Now, who are these masked men? Maybe you've seen pictures of them. They wear these hoods with, like, silhouetted eyes, okay? These are the assassination squads. These are people who, like, you know, will break into an Arab who's helping the IDF and axe him to death in the middle of the night. You know, they'll terrorize families. You know, the terrorism that they commit and their cells. And many of them were wanted. This is many years ago. Many of them were wanted. Um, the open fire rules were completely different for somebody who was masked. Normally at the time, in order to open fire on someone, you had to identify him. You had to identify that he was threatening you. If I saw a 25-year-old and he's throwing rocks at soldiers, but I don't think somebody's life is in danger, I'm not allowed to open fire. I'm not even begin the process of opening fire. But if somebody's throwing a rock at me and I think it's endangering my life, and I will afterwards have to defend this action in a military court, for sure, right? Then I'm allowed to open up the process of opening fire. There's just open fire. You have to scream out, wakif, you know, stop. And you have to be sure that he hears you. And then if that doesn't work, you have to fire in the air. If that doesn't work, you have to fire at the ground. If that doesn't work, you're allowed to fire his legs. And only if you're in extreme danger can you eventually fire at his torso. But with these mask guys, you don't have to do that at all. You can just open fire. Because you know that these people are killers. And most of us would scream wakef. Because maybe a guy would surrender. But if he didn't, you could open fire. So these are serious guys. And I hear over the radio that there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's an assassination guy. So I take off. Now, I know where he is. I know where I am. I know where I have to get to. I'm running down these alleys. I didn't realize that the guys were with me. They just weren't in shape. I was the youngest one of us because I was a new officer, right? So I'm running through these, you know, maze of alleys, and I get out to the area where he's describing, right? And I'm all on my own. The radio is behind me, the men are behind me, they're kind of working their way down. And I turn around a corner, and I see him. There's a guy, he's got a mask, like a hood, like a mask hood, like something out of Ku Klux Klan. He's waving a mace, okay? I looked up afterwards what it was called. It's got a spiked iron ball at the end of a chain, and a metal bar, and he's swinging it around. And the way these things work, I'd never seen someone with one of these, I'd read about them, is he's gonna throw it, and if it hits someone, it'll kill him. And he's got a big Palestinian flag in the other hand. Now, he's below me, because we're on the side of a hill. So I like come out, and there's like a street and another street, he's like two streets below. He's only about maybe 40 feet away from me, or something like, maybe the length of this base Mendesh, but I can only see the top of his body. So I scream at him, Wakif, and he looks at me, right? And he sees me, and I've got this gun, and I'm the soldier, and he dumps the, the mace and takes off. Now, I only have my web, like, I'm, I didn't have any other gear on me. I have my webbing and my machsanyot or whatever. This is hard to run with, but not, uh, we weren't wearing bulletproof vests back then. So I take off after him, right? I was in reasonably good shape. This guy was an Olympic runner. It was unbelievable. I mean, he was, it was unbelievable. Now, he's not carrying it. He's taken off. And the distance is he knows what's going to happen if I catch him. In fact, he doesn't know. He's got it in his imagination because he's being fed. He thinks I'm going to cut him up. I don't know what he thinks. 
So I'm running after him. I manage to get down one street below. I see him. And then I realize he's going to escape through this arch. And when he gets through this arch, I'm going to lose him. I'm going to lose him. Now, this is a second. You have a second to make a split decision. The only way to stop him is to shoot him in the back. That's a pretty serious issue, to shoot someone in the back. On the other hand, if I let him get away, and he goes and kills somebody, that's on me. Because I know that I can throw up my gun. He's not that far away. He's like, maybe from here to the end of the business, what is that, 30 feet? There's no way if I stop and I'm aiming at him, I'm going to hit him. But I really don't want to shoot someone in the back. First of all, you never know. What do you know who this guy is? And second of all, you're going to have to defend shooting a guy in the back. That just doesn't look good. So I scream out, Wakif! And I stop and I say, okay, if he goes through that arch, I'm taking him out. The guy turns around and he throws up his hand. He sees I'm going to shoot him. Right? Now I'm heaving because he's like the Olympic runner. So I finally got to keep my gun on him. I get down there. To this day, I tell you, I could make brachas all day for the fact that I didn't shoot this guy. Because when I get down there and I see him and I take off his hood, he's like an eight-year-old kid. I couldn't see him. He was like on lower I didn't know. He's a kid. I almost, I was this close to shooting a boy. Okay, so just to finish the story, you know, we called in the, you know, we called the battalion headquarters. We bring him back down to the square. By this time, the rest of my soldiers catch up with me. A, a vehicle comes. They take him to our base. They contact the, the you know, the authorities that, that are supposed to deal with this. They, they you know, the village all knows because they all see this kid. So the parent, the father, and a whole bunch of villagers, they get to the base like 10 minutes later before the MPs, before whoever's coming to deal with the situation, right? This kid is sitting in the back of the Jeep. We put him in the back of the Jeep. He's terrified. This kid is mom is terrified, right? But he's an eight-year-old kid. Now, don't get me wrong. Throwing a mace at a soldier, that bothers me. And if, God forbid, I had killed him to save a soldier's life, I could live with that. I wouldn't be happy about it, right? But I'm thrilled I didn't have to kill him and, you know, shoot him in the back. But now, he's a kid. He did these things because his parents taught him, his family taught him, they taught him in school, the imam taught him. I have no idea. You can't blame an eight-year-old kid. So like, I'm giving him a candy, another soldier's like patting him, you know, you have a said there, whatever. The father shows up. Now, what would you do if you're the dad of an eight-year-old kid captured by soldiers in the back of a jeep? You'd go over to him, you give him a hug, you have a said there. Salam, right? His father walks up. Now, I don't want anybody to mistakenly think that this is Arab society at large. Yesh ve'yesh. Okay? This is one aspect. There are many others, and a lot of them are wonderful. But in this particular moment, this particular guy, and by the way, I understand this guy. He's going to get, and this is like 20 years ago, he's going to get a 5,000 shekel knas because his kid was wearing a masked hood and didn't answer um, Israeli soldiers. He's going to get another 5,000 shekel fine for the mace, for that, that whole story. And the Israeli army rightly or wrongly believed that these kind of fines would deter, and actually worked. It took a few years. That's pretty much what stopped the Intifada. You know, 10,000 shekels is a huge amount of money for a Palestinian who, for all I know, owns a mechanic store. He walks over to this kid, and he gives him a... a, a, a he, he smacked him across. He sent this kid flying in the Jeep. He ended up upside down by the steering wheel. He walks around the Jeep, more like in shock. Like, two of us are watching this. We're like, you know, but look, what do you do? He's, it's his son. It took us a minute. He starts beating this kid. I never saw anything like this. We had to pull him off. And I realized at that point, I don't understand this whole story. I don't really know what's going on here. Now, why do I bring up this whole story? 
Okay? What does it mean to go to war? What are the implications to go to war? You know, one of the most difficult challenges, right? What do we say? When you will go out to war against your enemies, somebody ask me an obvious question. I'll read it again. When you go out to war against your enemies. Yeah? Okay, first question. What does it mean? What do you mean when you go out? If you go out? What does it say? When you're in a war, which happens, right? By the way, interesting. This is not the Pasuk that tells us there's a mitzvah to go to war sometimes. This is about when you fulfill a mitzvah. And, more interesting, according to Rashi, this is not Mechamah's mitzvah. There are two types of war. There's a Mechamah mitzvah, when we're in danger, when when a nation rises up wants to destroy the Jewish people, then you have a mitzvah to go to war. And by the way, even a chasm and a kala, women go to war. That's a whole interesting discussion. Right? Rashi here says, This is talking about a, a war which is reshut. It, it's a war of expansionism. You, 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 you want to gain territory because the Israeli economy needs it. You know, whatever it might be. A melech is allowed to do this. The Sanhedrin has to approve it. The Navi has to agree to it. Assuming that Hashem wants it and the Melech wants it and the Sanhedrin wants it, you go to war. That's not a mitzvah. That's Mechamer Rishut. And everybody has to go, but a lot of people are patur from going. If you just got married, you don't go. You just built a house, you don't go. You just started a business, you don't go. So it's Mechamer Rishut. Okay. But that's interesting. What does it mean if you go to war? Okay. What else? Yeah? So two things. Why does it say Al and And then you could also say, um, why, why does it Oh, why does it say when you go to war against your enemies? Who else do you go to war with? Obviously, you go to war against your enemies. So what does that even mean? So is this, and one last question. Okay, Al is an interesting discussion, but I'm not getting into it. What is What does it mean to go out to war? You go to war. Why do you have to go out to war? What does it mean, let's say it? to go out to war, right? I want to tell you something interesting. First of all, one of the challenges of war is that you have to go out of your comfort zone. Um, it, it challenges you, it tests you. It, it pushes you beyond your comfortable limits in, in your behavior, in your psychological thought process, right? Like, I can't even imagine Doing, sort of dealing with some of the things you deal with in war anywhere else, right? So put that thought aside for a moment. We'll get back to that, okay? Um, it strikes me that in order to wage war, you have to be able to do two things, especially if you want to succeed. And by the way, the Pasuk implies, and the Archaim suggests this, that if you will wage war in the proper way, you will be victorious. That's what Hashem says. If you will wage war in the proper way, you will be victorious. That's a pretty significant promise. Okay. Interestingly enough, if that's true about the state of Israel, it would be reasonable to say that maybe the reason that Hashem has blessed us to continue to win the wars... By the way, it's very easy to measure whether Israel has won its war. We're still here. If we had lost any of our wars, we wouldn't be here. Right? That's the age-old line. If the Arabs put down their guns, there'll be peace. If the Jews put down their guns, there'll be a massacre. 
right? So how come we merit to do this? We must be doing something right. Okay, that's interesting. The first thing you have to know is who your enemy is. If you don't know who your enemy is, you can't fight a war. And this is a big problem today. Everybody here is thinking of war of like machine guns in Lebanon. There's Jews fighting wars on college campuses today. Right? You know, the new anti-Semitism is anti-Zionism. Without getting too deep into politics, sometimes your friends are your enemies, your enemies are your friends. It gets very confusing today. Right? So you have to know who your enemy is. And the second thing is, you have to know what you're fighting for. This is actually um, something the Israeli army started to realize a good number of years ago. And they've, they've ensconced all sorts of programs in the Israeli army to deal with this. Right? Um, whole groups of Israeli soldiers go to Poland. I'm not sure I would do that, but that's what they do. Know what you're fighting for. I'm not sure that's what you're fighting for, but whatever. Um, every Israeli soldier who was sworn into the Israeli army, or at some point, will come to the Kotel. And the idea, whether they succeed in your question, is what are you fighting for? Right? Um, I, I did a program many, many, many years ago with a group of American army veterans. They asked me to come speak and share some time with them. I was supposed to be there for half a day. I spent three days with them. I just couldn't walk away. These were um, American soldiers who had been through really tough times, uh, some of them in Vietnam. A lot of them had PTSD. And they connected them with Israeli soldiers who had been through tough situations and also had PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. And they had all sorts of programs. So somebody heard me, the army, Israeli, rabbi, whatever, would I come speak with them? It got so intense. It was unbelievable. And at one point, we're doing this group around, and I asked the Americans, so, okay, you're at war. What are you fighting for? Now, I expected them to say, my whole point was, right, that they're going to say, like, you know, um... I'm fighting for the United States of America, I'm fighting for democracy, I'm fighting for my freedom, right? They all said to me the same thing, every single one of them. You wanna know what they're fighting for? Anybody wanna guess? Nope, these are American soldiers in Vietnam, they're not even Jewish, yeah? Close. Nope. Why would an American in Vietnam think he's fighting for his family in Wisconsin? That's part of the problem, he had no idea why he was in Vietnam, yeah? Nope, they're fighting for their buddies. I'm fighting because I care about my buddies. Okay? I'll bet, I'll bet in the American army, I don't think they fixed this. I will bet in the American army, if you talk to a guy who was in Afghanistan or Iraq, I'll tell you the same thing. It's not true for the Israeli army. Obviously, you care about your buddies and you put your life on the line for them, but you're not fighting for your buddies. You're fighting for something much bigger and much more meaningful than your buddies. You're fighting for the state of Israel, for the Jewish people, for whatever it is you're fighting for. So you have to know what you're fighting for. Right? Today, it's confusing who the enemy is. Right? By the way, this is interesting because this mirrors our whole discussion about Hilchos Tshuva. Some of us talked about this today. The first stage of Tshuva, of getting back to who I need to be, is Zakarat Achet. You have to recognize what your hate is, what your mistake is. If you don't recognize what you're doing wrong, you can't fix it. If you don't think there's anything wrong with cursing, you're not going to stop cursing. And if you don't think there's anything wrong with smoking, you're not going to stop smoking. So the same thing, you have to recognize what there is to fight about before you go to war. Right? Fascinating idea. By the way, war itself is a fascinating topic, okay? You know, I've had people say to me, you know, like, I don't know, I, I had a very hard time when they were negotiating with Yasser Arafat. I felt at the time, Yasser, he was like the arch-terrorist in the world. He was directly, not indirectly, responsible for the Munich massacres. There were many terrorist hijackings, Libya in 1972. 
He had a lot of blood on his hands, and I felt this person should be put on trial. I don't think we should be talking peace with him. So somebody says to me, I remember this. Um, oh, I was actually I was being interviewed on CNN. That's a whole other story. And the reporter said, well, you don't make peace with your enemies. With your friends, you make peace with your enemies. Now, I wasn't sharp enough at the time to answer it. I gave him a different answer. But afterwards, I was thinking about it. I said, that's actually not true. You definitely don't need to make peace with your friends, and you definitely need to make peace with your enemies. But in order to make peace with your enemies, your enemy has to want to make peace. If your enemy doesn't want to make peace, there's no point in talking peace. And you've got to go to war. So this raises a fascinating question. How do you know when to make peace, and how do you know when to fight? So I'm standing there on top of a hill in Hebron. Do I give up my principle? What if afterwards I had known? I thought, you could imagine when you have an experience like that. I mean, you're like shaking. You almost killed a kid. You're shaking. It took me a while to shake that. And I did a lot of thinking. And the Israeli army is pretty good about this stuff. At least it was when I was there. And they debrief you. You have a whole debriefing. And you analyze the incident. You talk to somebody. And they wanted me to talk to a kaban to make sure I was okay. And I didn't even kill the kid. Right? And one of the things that came up is, I was asked by somebody in this process, okay, let's say you're up on that hill, and he doesn't turn around. He doesn't throw down his mace. He doesn't throw up his hands. Do you shoot him? And I said, yeah, I was going to shoot him. So I'm not 100% sure I was right, but I was definitely going to shoot him. And I checked it out afterwards. I would have been following orders. Then he says to me, okay, so you're in the same situation. He's masked. He's running through the arch. Only now you know he's an eight-year-old kid, ten-year-old kid. Do you still shoot him? I couldn't answer that question. That's a tough question. It took me a while to think about that. So forget about for the moment what my answer is, because that's a discussion. You can ask me that when we have children to do the Q&A in a few minutes. But, but how do you make those decisions? How do you know when to compromise and when to stick with your principles? So I want to share this idea with you. I'm going to spend 10 minutes on this topic and we'll finish this year. How do you know when to compromise? There is a fascinating Gemara in Sanhedrin and Davvav. What is this? This is an unbelievable Gemara. First paragraph of Sanhedrin is Shloshah Mumchin. It's about what qualifies as a, as a court of law, what a Bezdin is. You need at least three. Why you need at least three and everything else? So the Gemara says like this. Davvav Amidbet. Rabbi Lezer Benosho Rabbi Yossi Aglili. Omer Asr Livtsoa. It is forbidden, they may know what Bot says. Want to guess? Compromise. It's forbidden to compromise. Now, who are we talking about? We're talking about a Bezdin. So that's like terrible. You don't want a court to compromise? So let's think about this, okay? Let's say that uh, Simon Goldberg comes to uh, Ethan and says, uh, Ethan, right? Eitan or Ethan? Eitan, sorry. You're Ethan. Gets confused, shouldn't it? It's the next to each other. So Simon Goldberg says to Eitan, You owe me 100 bucks. Eitan says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't owe you 100 bucks. Right? And somebody else says, well, I saw that you gave him 100 bucks, but so, so we get to court. So Simon says, you owe me $100. Eitan says, I don't. And we're the court. So we say to them, listen, why don't you compromise? Give him 50. You know, me in the middle. So Rabiel says, you don't know how to do that. Why should he have to lose $50? Either one of them. By the way, if you do that, then, then justice will not prevail. Everybody will be wrong. You have an obligation to do justice. Okay. So Rabbi Yossi Aglil says, why is that? Right? 
Such a person is a transgressor. He's making a big mistake. And somebody who actually praises the person who makes a compromise is cursing God. And he quotes a Pasuk, right? It's a Pasuk in... in Pasuk in second in Tehillim. A person, well, it's not exactly the meaning there, but that's how the Gemara understands it. Okay? Can't compromise. Now, this is interesting. Then the Gemara continues, and I'm skipping part of the Gemara here because we're limited in time, but you know. Why is it called Botseya compromising? That's Yehuda was the ultimate compromiser. And you say that if a person praises Yehuda and he says, we're going to profit. What are we going to gain from his blood, right? The brothers wanted to kill Yosef. He says, you know what? Let's not kill him. You know, you want to kill him. Maybe I'm thinking we should let him go. Let's compromise. We'll throw him in a pit and we'll sell him as a slave. Great idea. It's a compromise. He saves Yosef's life. Now let him do that. If a person does that, he's Menayat Hashem. It's like he's cursing God. Okay. Comes along Rabbi Yeshua. And Rabbi Yeshua says, Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha, mitzvah liftzah. There's a mitzvah to compromise. Shenemar emetu mishpat v'shalom shiftu b'sharechem. Right? Zechariah says, when will we stop mourning the base of Mikdash? Zechariah was prophesying at the beginning of the second temple. When they came to him and they said, Hi, Kesh, should we still mourn even though the second temple is built? And Zechariah, a Navi, explains why we're not there yet. When we have a, a, a land that is filled only with peace and justice, then we'll be ready to say the base of Mikdash is properly rebuilt. By the way, anybody who says you don't need to fast on Tisha because Yerushalayim is here, should read this Gemara and read that parak of Zechariah. That to me is ridiculous. I think there are certain things that should change, but that's not one of them. But okay, right? So he says, Ezeb, Talobama, Komshiyesh Mishpat Ein Shalom. He says, what does it mean? You should have Mishpat Ein Shalom. In a place where there's justice, there's not peace because it's justice and somebody loses. And with this piece, where we make everybody gets along, and the two sides compromise, then there's no justice, like we explained before. Right? That's bitzua, and such a person is praised. So what's the Gemara saying here? It's an interesting question. Right? Oh, sorry, Rabbi Mayer. Compromise you shouldn't do. Rabbi Yeshua Benkarcha says, no. You should compromise the mitzvah. So I understand, we say that Yehuda was wrong to compromise. But Zechariah was right to compromise. So how do you explain this? So I want to share with you a deep idea. Rav Nevinsal explains the problem with Yehuda's compromise was that Yehuda was compromising at Yosef's expense. When else does Yehuda compromise? Anybody? Pardon? What's the compromise? They want to throw Binyamin into jail. The brothers say he's innocent. Yehuda steps forward and says, let's compromise. You say he's guilty, I say he's innocent. Take me. Take me instead. 
Yehuda, by the way, in that moment, when he puts himself above his brother, in place of his brother, according to the mystical tradition, that's when he enters the realm of... That's when Yehuda becomes Yehuda. He becomes who he's supposed to be. In the story of Yosef, he was compromising Yosef's expense. In this story, he's compromising his own expense. He's putting his life in danger. Not so simply you're allowed to do that. He compromised himself at somebody else's expense. Compromise. How do you know when to compromise? Gotta ask a simple question. Why am I compromising? Am I compromising for me? Or am I compromising for someone else? Is this about me or is this bigger than me? Now I want you to understand something. Kitetse is always at the beginning of hell. What's the war we're really fighting? God willing, no one here will ever have to go to war. It sounds all romantic sitting here now, 30 years later. It's one of the more horrible experiences a person can have. Who wants to go to war? But the truth is we all go to war. You have to do battle. What do you have to do battle? Who, what's your, what's your, what are your enemies in life? What are the things that bring you down? What are the things you have to fight against? That's what Kitetse is really about. It's interesting that this appears right before Eshet which is a person who has desires that Chazal say a person ideally shouldn't have. Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, if he went to war, he wouldn't fall for an idolatrous woman. Before you do battle, in fact, there's an unbelievable Orachayim. The Orachayim says, why does it say, why does it say against your enemies? So he gives a practical answer. He says, would be totally forbidden if it wasn't in the middle of a war. You can't go find an idolatrous woman, bring her home, and then seek her to marry her. But because you're in the middle of the war, and your Yetzirah took hold of you, the Torah understands that people have Yetzirah, and has a healthy way of dealing with them. So a person will think, so the Torah says, when a person goes to war, he's going to realize he can allow himself certain things. So maybe he'll go, they'll run to the bad things, they'll go to war, so they can do all the things you're allowed to do in war. So that they'll enjoy, you know, if you're in war and you have no food, you can eat treif. I'm not giving psak halacha here, Baruch Hashem, we have kosher food in the Israeli army, but if you're in a situation, you have to eat treif. Let's say a guy wants a cheeseburger, and there isn't enough food in the army, you go to war, you'll get that cheeseburgers in Beirut. So the Orachim says, it says, make sure that when you go to war, you're going to war for the right reasons. Be sure, says the Orachim, make sure that the war you're fighting is a war to relieve the Jewish people, to relieve you from your enemies. Right? That's what fighting a war is about. So what are the things that I need to do battle with? So in order to do battle with the things that I struggle with, I have to go out to war. I have to step outside my comfort zone. So for one person, he's doing battle against sleeping late because he spent the better part of senior year enjoying the pillow. Okay, that's part of American culture. And it's hard to break that. You want to grow? You want to accomplish? You want to succeed? You want to become the person you can be? You've got to go outside of your comfort zone. Got to know who the enemy is. What are the things that bring me down? It's unbelievable how easy it is to think that the things that bring me down bring me up. When I was in Lebanon, I, I, most of the guys who know me know this, when I was in the army, every single guy in my unit started smoking. But every single one of us. And we actually thought, I thought it was great. I didn't think there was anything wrong with smoking. If you go through a situation like that, and afterwards, you get to sit down and have a smoke and calm yourself down, it's a good thing. 
It's helping you calm down. It's helping you get through all this or whatever. And that's what we would do, sit on a tank, which was illegal, but whatever, and we'd all smoke a cigarette, kind of chill out, calm down. And there's a little warning on the box that says, cigarette smoking is hazardous to your health. <laughs> like people getting shot at every day. You're worried about a cigarette? I didn't think I was going to make it home from that year. So you don't even think it's the enemy. So of course you can't do battle with it. How do you figure out what you need to do battle against? How do you figure out what brings you down? Right? And it's interesting, by the way, that at the end of the parsha, and with this all ends, how does this parsha Kitetse end? It ends with Milchemet Amalek. Alright? Amalek. By the way, as an aside, anybody here who didn't make Parsha Zachor, for some reason, Corona, and <clears throat> whatever, you didn't hear Parsha Zachor, which is a mitzvah da'oraisa, you can be yotze that mitzvah simply by being in Shulah Shabbos. Just have in mind when they read a Malik that you want to be yotze the mitzvah Zachira. You can do it anyway and do it twice. Right? Why is that at the end of this parsha? Because there are some battles you can't compromise on. A Malik, you don't get to decide to give in to a Malik. You got to fight a Malik. And that's part of what the challenge of this year is. What are the things that bring me down? What are the battles I have to be ready to fight? How do I go out of my comfort zone? How far do I get out of my comfort zone? What's healthy? What's unhealthy? And we have to be able, and I'll, I'll, I'll just, there's a midah called netzach. Right? You know what netzach is? This is really interesting. Everybody talks about like chesed and gvura, right? Different sfirot, different midot. You know, chesed all about outward loving kindness and giving, gvura, surrender, receiving. Where's netzach? That's the fourth. Where's netzach? Netzach means two things in Judaism. Last thought for the night. Two things. Nitzchuni banai, it means victory. What else does it mean? Anybody know? Pardon? Nope. What does it mean? Netzach. Netzach, netzachim, forever. It means eternity. It means victory and it means eternity. What does victory have to do with eternity? You know what netzach is? At your age, you've got things you're dealing with. And as you get older, other things come along. And, and you deal with new things. If you can't take some of the things off the table and be done with them, the pile gets too big to manage. You have to be able to finish with certain things. It's like a person who's constantly struggling to lose weight. Right? And he's also tr- struggling to give up smoking. And he realizes he's messy, he's got to become neater. And he procrastinates. It's so much stuff, how can you deal with it all? He says, you know what, I don't know if I can deal with it all, but this I'm going to finish with. I could spend the rest of my life trying to lose weight. I'm going to become healthy, eat healthy, and then I won't have to worry about it anymore. Right? You can't just sort of... You know, if you smoked one cigarette a month, don't do this, but if you smoked one cigarette a month, it probably wouldn't be a big deal. Your lungs regenerate. I don't think one cigarette a month. I could be wrong. I'm not an expert on the topic. The person smoked one cigarette. The problem is nobody can smoke one cigarette a month. Right? But let's say you figured out a way to smoke one cigarette a month. But then it's always there. You gotta take it off the table. You gotta be done with it. I haven't had cigarettes in years and years, and I'm done. There's things you have to do to make sure it never comes back, but you gotta take things off the table. So, know who your enemy is, know what's bringing you down, know what you have to fight against, be victorious, let it off the table, and then you can move on to bigger and better things. That's the beginning of the work of El. Now, how you do this, how you identify what things to work on, okay, that's a journey. And we're going to be on that journey all year. But that's a little bit of food for thought on Parashat Ki